Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the executive director of Coastal States Organization, and I'm the host for the Capitol Beach. I'm very excited to be joined today by three, not one, not two, but three excellent guests uh, to talk about national estuary programs. The uh, National Estuary Program is a, is a well, I guess we'll hear what it is, but it's a offshoot of the Environmental Protection Agency. It's one way in which EPA uh, helps manage our coastlines. And so I'm really excited to talk to three folks today, one of whom is with the EPA and two of whom are directors of National Estuary Programs across the country. Um, we'll learn a bit about them. We'll learn a bit about what the NEPs do, maybe a little about history. And then, as we always like to do, we follow the money and talk a little bit about how the programs are funded and, and maybe even how the infrastructure bill might help support some of the work they're doing. Should be a great program. And we'll uh, before we get started, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Okay, uh, excellent. So today we are joined by Jeff Lerner with uh, the Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watersheds at EPA, Laura Blackmore, who is with the Puget Sound National Estuary Program, uh, and Roberta Swan, who is with the Mobile Bay National Estuary Program. Um, and before we actually introduce you, I think probably it makes sense to introduce what an National Estuary Program or an NEP is. And so I think Roberta, you drew the, I'm not sure if you drew the short straw or the long straw, but uh, do you want to give us a quick, a quick 30 second version of what is a National Estuary Program? Sure. And thank you for having me today, Derek. Um, the National Estuary Program was a concept that was born out of amendments to the Clean Water Act in 1987. And I look at it as the carrot to the more regulatory programs at EPA, whereas the National Estuary Program was established to bring coastal interests to the table to develop a common agenda for protecting our estuarine environments. Excellent. I like that. The carrot to the EPA stick. You often think of the EPA being the regulatory agency, but the estuary programs absolutely aren't. Thank you, Roberta. We'll get a lot into that, um, but why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, what's your background? How did you get involved in the NEPs? Well, my background is actually in business and community development. I, the beginning of my career was spent working for HUD programs, specifically the Community Development Block Grant Program. And when my family moved to Alabama in the Mobile area, there was an opportunity to work for the National Estuary Program, where here we're part of the Dolphin Island Sea Lab. The Dolphin Island Sea Lab is a kind of a marine lab, a consortium of universities throughout the state of Alabama focused on coastal issues and then things offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. And I thought, okay, is there a community development aspect to this? <laughs> and I applied for the job. I got it. And I recognized that environmental protection and community development go hand in hand. And I had an opportunity to continue my work and my passion in community development by just um, applying those same concepts to environmental protection. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Roberta, and thank you for joining me. Um, let's turn to uh, Laura from the Pacific Northwest and the Puget Sound. Laura, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got involved with the Puget Sound National Estuary Program? Sure, and, and thank you for having me. Um, I came to the National Estuary Program actually um, through my work with the salmon recovery effort here in Puget Sound. You may know that our Chinook, Steelhead, 
and other species are listed under the Endangered Species Act. And I was doing a lot of work as a consultant, actually, to the Puget Sound Partnership um, once it got started in 2007, helping them lead and manage the multi-stakeholder facilitation of their salmon recovery program here in Puget Sound. And eventually, it just made sense for me to come in-house. And so I, we are actually, you know, Roberta mentioned she's part of a lab. The Puget Sound Partnership is actually a state agency here in Washington State. Um, and so I came in-house uh, in 2015 and have never looked back. Awesome. Well, that's uh, great to hear. And then uh, lastly, we'll turn to Jeff, who is the Chief of Partnerships at the Office of Wetland, or the Chief of Partnership Programs, the Office of Wetlands, Oceans, and Watersheds, which uh, may have the best acronym in Washington, D.C. It's OWOW. So, um, Jeff, tell us about how you got how you got involved in OWOW. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Yeah, OWOW. What a day we are having at, at EPA every day. Um, yeah, I'm actually relatively new to uh, EPA. I've only been with the agency for about six months, but I've been involved in national programs most of my career, mostly national habitat uh, programs, working on biodiversity conservation, also forest conservation. And I've also been involved in some different um, estuary-specific projects, uh, most recently in places like the Chesapeake Bay program, uh, uh, connected with the one of our EPA geographic pro programs. Um, but I also, uh, before coming to EPA, uh, I ran a um, watershed uh, protection program called the Healthy Watersheds Consortium Grant Program, which was a great partnership with EPA and the NRCS and a group called the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities. And um, one of our terrific grantees was the Mobile Bay National Estuary Program, Roberta's program. And they did a terrific analysis um looking at almost the entire uh, state of Alabama um, and uh, identified strategic locations that were going to benefit the, the estuary um, and, uh, and then proceeded to work with partners to, to get about, I think, 17,000 acres of land protected through forest conservation easements. So um, that was my real robust introduction to uh, the power of these uh, national estuary programs and the power of their partnerships. And so that was what attracted me, I think, to being involved with this. And our partnership programs also include at EPA the um, Urban Waters Federal Partnership and also a program called the Trash Free Waters Program. And those, those also intersect at times with different national estuary programs around the country. And there's there's 28 of those, um, 28 NEPs in our network currently. Um, and uh, from our headquarters location, we uh, we have a team that works with all of those different pro programs. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, and I, I actually don't think I knew any of your backgrounds before this call, but I, I feel like a background in community development, a background in salmon recovery, and a background in habitat and watershed restoration is actually pretty evocative of the kind of work that's being done by the National Estuary Program. So uh, maybe a little teaser for what might come, but uh, really, really interesting backgrounds. So um, Laura, I'll, I'll turn to you to maybe give us a, a bit of a, a broader overview uh, beyond what Roberta talked about, but what does it mean to be an NEP? What are the responsibilities? And, and maybe pull from your own example of what is it that you guys do in, in the Puget Sound? What's your responsibilities? Right. Uh, so our responsibilities, all 28 of us, each of us, our primary responsibility is to create a locally driven, locally tailored management plan for our estuary. And they are called, those plans are called the uh, Comprehensive Conservation and Management Plan, or CCMPs. We love to use our acronyms around here. Um, and the example here in Puget Sound is called the Puget Sound Action Agenda. And each of us updates our CCMP, our plan on a different schedule, according to, you know, local conditions. Here in Washington, here in the Puget Sound, we update our plan every four years. And in fact, we have just released our latest version, the 2022 to 2026 action agenda. And then we send that to EPA for their approval. And EPA approved our plan uh, this August, which is very exciting. So we're all set to go now in implementation. 
And I think the important point about our plans, each of us creates, maintains, nurtures, does care and feeding for what we call a management conference, which is a consortium of folks who help us create this plan. And here in Puget Sound, uh, we work with uh, our federal partners, of course, and my fellow state agencies, but also importantly, our tribal partners, local governments, uh, the business community, NGOs, academia, uh, I'm sure I'm missing somebody, fishermen, uh, farmers, the timber industry, uh, to bring everyone together to say, this is what we need to do over the next four years to recover Puget Sound. And each of us does that in our own way uh, across the nation. And so, and then once we have our plan in place, then we move to implementation and trying to help our partners uh, do the great work of recovery every day. So Laura, for, for that plan or that action agenda that you put together, what enforcement, it, it, do you have an enforcement mechanism or is it uh, simply a cooperative agreement that all the stakeholders want to implement because they feel like it's the right thing to do? How do you actually move to implementation on those? Great, great question. We are not, the National Estuary Program is not a regulatory program. We do not have any regulatory authority. And I mentioned um, I lead a state agency and even as in that role as a state agency, we don't have any regulatory authority either. So I think that we each try to get things done actually mostly through relationship, relationship building, um, bringing folks together to help them agree on what needs to be done, a set of priorities. And then we talk a lot about empowering our partners to get their work done. So in my National Estuary Program, we do three things. We align folks around the common plan. We uh, we engage in what we call in what we call shared learning, which is where we um, monitor and track and publish reports about our progress and help each other learn what's the next thing we need to do, how can we do it better, and then thirdly, we support our partners, and that's through things like helping them obtain funding, uh, figuring out what barriers might be in the way in terms of. Um, you know, anything legislative or government bureaucracy that we can try to help reduce. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time working with our partners to help them do their jobs better. So, but yeah, we have no regulatory authority and, uh, but it seems to work. One more follow-up and then I'll, I'll turn to Roberta to see if she has other, other examples on this, but is the plan primarily water quality focused or does it incorporate other aspects? Because I often think of EPA and the EPA programs being more on the water quality than perhaps the biological management or the sediment management. So what's what's the, what's the action plan look like or the action agenda look like? Our action agenda has many elements, five key outcomes that we are really trying to achieve. And water quality is a very big part of that. Absolutely. We work a lot on stormwater management in particular, you know, re reduction of toxics in the environment, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we also, I mentioned salmon recovery is a big deal for us here in Puget Sound. We are uh, very focused on protecting and restoring habitat to bring back our salmon, which also in turn feed our, our southern resident orcas and our people. Uh, we have a very strong focus in our National Estuary Program on human well-being and a vibrant quality of life. And so working with our partners to understand how to um, improve, how we address environmental justice is a big issue for us right now, um, making sure we're reaching additional partners um, and, and lifting up voices that haven't traditionally been involved in Puget Sound recovery. So, and then, and then of course, trying to tackle climate change. Uh, certainly we support national and international policy to mitigate climate change, but doing a lot of work here on the ground to try to adapt to the worst effects of climate change, which some of our partners in Florida and the Carolinas are feeling right now. Um, so it, it is, water quality is a central tenant, but it is one of, of several. So just a, just a handful of things to, to work on. Just a handful, right? Always something new every day. Well, Roberta, I'll pivot to you. I'd, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about sort of what the responsibilities are and, and what you guys do in Mobile Bay. And then, um, well, actually, why don't you just tell us a bit about sort of how your your uh, estuary program parallels uh, Puget Sound and, and a bit more specifics on what you guys work on? Sure. So the Mobile Bay National Estuary Program is not a governmental entity. 
like Puget Sound is. Ours being under a quasi-public uh, organization, which is the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, we have a little bit more flexibility to provide service to our state and local our local agencies in a way that um, we can position ourselves as the, you know, kinder environmental organization, which is not regulatory or perceived to be regulatory in any way. So people tend to want to work with us and those local governments tend to use us as the um, as a way to get things done where people will agree to do them where they wouldn't agree to work with a city or a state, if that makes sense. But our CCMP is focused on four areas of service, measuring status and trends of estuarine conditions and coastal conditions, ecosystem restoration and protection. And we do that through continuous improvement of environmental management, implementing a watershed-based approach. Uh, building technical assistance and, and capacity building, helping build the capacity of our local governments, our grassroots groups, our business associations to do a better job of protecting the environment, and then growing citizen stewardship through uh, training our citizens to be community scientists. Um, our CCMP was written back, our latest CCMP, I should say, ours is on a five-year cycle. And the one that we're, uh, we're in our fourth year of implementing, getting into our fifth year, starting October 1 tomorrow, is focused on six things that people value most about living on the Alabama coast. So we focus on access to the water and open spaces, beaches and shorelines, uh, healthy populations of fish and wildlife, promoting and celebrating the area's heritage and culture, community and environmental resilience. We are along the Gulf of Mexico and are grateful that we did not sustain any of the impacts from Ian and are certainly sending out our, our best wishes to our sister programs of Florida for what they have just been through. And then, of course, water quality. In Alabama, especially in coastal Alabama, you don't have to go far to put your toes in water. And that's what we learned when we wrote this current CCMP is everybody is intrinsically connected to the water. So that is really our common, the common thread that binds us all. And interestingly, the name of our CCMP is Respect the Connect. So we've been working I guess you could say that's my community development bent that I bring to the table and really getting our residents and visitors to respect their connections to our, our natural environment of Alabama, our coastal environment of Alabama, so that they can value it more and work with us to protect it. Thank you, Roberta. It's fascinating to hear both of you guys talk about the integration of human and ecological uh, and, and looking beyond just sort of the immediate land water interface boundaries of the estuary, but looking up and down the watershed and, and thinking about how the estuary plays a role in really in the whole community and the whole geographic region. Um, I was going to ask, I do want to ask a bit about how the NEP system got started. Um, but I actually wanted to turn to, to Jeff because we heard a little, we heard some specific information about Washington, some specific about Mobile Bay. Um, I think this is probably replicated across the 28 programs, but from EPA's perspective, where do you see sort of the greatest value coming from? Like, why does EPA want to keep this program going? And, I, and it makes sense to me of why it, it, these are valuable programs at the local scale or at the regional scale. But what do you see as the national uh, value or the national responsibility of having an NEP system in place. Sure. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a great concept because uh, you're through the national estuary program, you're getting additional coverage across many of our coastal areas of the U S and I guess that kind of gets into your, your earlier thought about the, you know, the history of, of this program, but, um, EPA has supported programs like the uh, the Chesapeake Bay program and the Great Lakes program for for many years, and the NEPs came along a little bit later than that. And I think the uh, the idea was, what can we learn from those large uh, geographic programs that EPA operates, and how do we um, how do we get 
more impact on the protection and restoration of estuary and health. And using this idea of a, a partnership program, I think emerged as a, um, a, a you know a really um, useful device model uh, that can engage uh, communities along our coastlines and within our coastal watersheds. And I think one of the key things that we get out of the um, National Estuary Program is also a fair amount of leverage for uh, what are essentially modest investments from EPA uh, through the program. So if you look at some of the numbers, and I hope Roberta and Laura will be able to talk about that a little bit um, in terms of their own programs, it's quite a significant leverage that we get in terms of attracting dollars from other agencies and working effectively with states and other partners uh, to be able to accomplish more projects on the ground, get to more restoration um, uh, projects implemented, and then that leads to water quality benefits. So I think the, in, in a nutshell, the partnership concept leads to more uh, collective impact uh, within our coastal watersheds. And I think that's why we're interested in continuing that the, the program. Yeah, excellent. And I really do want to get into the money because I think I've learned in my time in, in working policy is that, you know, you follow the money and you see where the, the work gets done. And um, But I did want to touch on that, that history piece. Uh, Roberta, before we were recording, you were telling me a little bit about the history and I, I found it quite fascinating. Do you want to maybe share with our audience sort of how the NEP got started, the NEP system got started, particularly uh, as it relates to the Clean Water Act? Sure. So the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, and its initial passage was focused on uh, managing or reducing pollutant loads going into waterways from industry. It established a permitting system for industry through the National Pollutant Elimination MPDES, National Pollution Elimination Discharge System. And over a 15-year period, that permitting, although there were still some bad actors, that permitting really reduced significantly the amount of pollution going into our waterways. Before the Clean Water Act, remember what triggered the Clean Water Act was, you know, rivers being on fire, basically. So there was a lot of cleaning up of our waterways during that 15-year period from 1972 to 1987. In 1987, um, Congress decided that they needed to take another look at the Clean Water Act and they needed to see what amendments needed to be made and what progress had been made in protecting our environment. And so the 1987 amendments focused more on non-point source pollution or pollution that you couldn't you couldn't trace back to a specific source. A lot of that is stormwater runoff or it might be um, related to, uh, you know, trash or roadway, roadway pollution or residues. So when they developed the 1987 amendments, that's when they created the Section 319 program, which runs through the states to address some of these nonpoint sources. They also um, increased funding two states for a state revolving loan funds to allow some of our utilities to be able to upgrade the wastewater treatment systems. And then when they looked back on what they included in those amendments, there was a man that was a high-level official in the Office of Water at EPA. His name was Tudor Davies. He suggested, um, along with all of these national-level efforts to reduce pollution, is there a way we could focus some of our efforts on place-based programs? And that really gave birth to the National Estuary Programs or Estuaries of National Significance. There was some interest from some congressmen and in the Northeast, particularly wanting to protect Casco Bay and Narragansett Bay. And so those desires to protect those bays turned into the National Estuary Program as part of those amendments where we would convene these management conferences, I think Laura mentioned earlier, bringing not only better coordinating federal federal investments in these specific geography-based programs so that we could have a 
a lift, if you will, of environmental protection in those areas, but also um, tasking these programs with bringing together federal, state, local government, all of those different stakeholder groups that Laura mentioned earlier, business, industry, academia, grassroots group, citizens, whatever was happening in that particular geo uh, geography, bring all those stakeholders to the table if they have uh, a common interest around protecting the environment, create that common agenda, and then support this program and helping to be a backbone organization, if you will, f- to allow these people to affect collective impact in these geographies or national estuaries of significance. Cool. So started as sort of the impetus came out of the, uh, the non-point source pollution amendments, but really has since taken off to become a much more cohesive or, or broadly uh, broad-ranging partnership program um, to address a lot of different issues. Uh, excellent. Well, I, I'll pose this to either Roberta or Laura. Um, either of you have any fun creation stories of how uh, how your NEP got started, the, either the Puget Sound or the uh, Mobile Bay? What, what sort of inspired the creation of your your program? So here in the Puget Sound region, we have a long history of of caring deeply about this body of water. So there were some predecessor organizations before the Puget Sound Partnership was created. Uh, The Puget Sound Water Quality Action Team, uh, Puget Sound Water Quality Authority. But in 2006-ish, five, six, uh, things were not going well um, and in terms of the, the health of Puget Sound. And then Governor Christine Gregoire uh, created a task force actually to, to figure out, okay, if this is not going the way it's supposed to, what should we do differently? And so there were lots and lots of people who came together under the leadership of uh, Bill Ruckelshaus, who some of you may recall was the, the, head, the first head of EPA, along with uh, Billy Frank Jr., who is um, a revered tribal leader um, here in in the Puget Sound region, uh, sadly, both of those those giant men have passed away. Uh, but they co-led a process that resulted in the creation of the Puget Sound Partnership as a state agency in two thousand seven. Cool, definitely some icons of the coastal and, and environmental world. Yes, in Mobile Bay, I I, I don't have as colorful as a story, sorry to say, but I will say this, it was a scientist at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab. Um, it was probably the director of the Sea Lab at the time, Dr. George Crozier, and um, the current director of the Sea Lab, Dr. John Valentine, who conceived of, did the research about the National Estuary Program and put together the application to establish one in Mobile Bay. And I think the impetus behind that, but I, you know, I'm sure they could tell you differently. The impetus was there wasn't a lot of money being invested in environmental protection in this area, and that this program provided a way to establish that convening uh, infrastructure to to leverage other dollars and leverage other interest in protecting the environment along the coast of Alabama. And so they uh, they applied, and then Governor Fob James signed that application, submitted it, and we became, I believe, the 20, I guess we were the 27th NEP, maybe. I'm not sure which one we were, but we were one of the last ones that was created. Cool. Well, congratulations on being one of the more recent ones. I know there have been 28, and there have been 28 for a little while now. Um, they do certainly, if you sort of look at the map, they seem to be more heavily dominant in the the mid-Atlantic and northeast, but I suppose there are a lot of little estuaries and, and bays up there, and you know Puget Sound is bigger than many of them, and Mobile Bay is sort of dominant. So, uh, But all across the country, um, almost every uh, saltwater coastal state has has one. Um, well, let's go back to more the, the, the political side or the policy side. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned earlier that you feel like, you know, they're, they're a good investment for EPA because they leverage a lot of other money, a lot of funding comes to them and you can get a lot of work done, uh, in terms of, 
you know, broad conservation uh, without a huge investment from EPA. But I know EPA does provide funding or Congress provides funding through through the EPA to the programs. How are, how, and maybe I'll start with Jeff. How are the NEPs funded by the federal government? And then I'll turn to either Laura or Roberta to talk a bit about how, um, how, how you guys are funded, you know, how, how the additional supplemental funds uh, work. So Jeff, how does the federal government or EPA fund the NEP program? Yeah, it's um, as part of the annual budget process, uh, Congress appropriates funding under Section 320 of the Clean Water Act to implement these approved uh, CCMPs, the, the plans that Laura had talked about, uh, for these estuaries of national significance, which are these 28 uh, NEPs. The funding goes through EPA, uh, which then enters into a grant or a cooperative agreement with each of the 28 programs. Um, And the amount of money can vary from year to year, depending upon the different budget negotiations in Congress. Um, But it it is important to say we've seen an increasing level of support for NEPs in general just over the last few years. Um, And so uh, each of the uh, I believe in this this past round, each NEP was receiving, I think, $750,000 um, just from what we consider to be our base funding. And we're, we're talking about base funding now because of the, um, the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, and when that was passed uh, this past November, uh, it actually added additional funding to the National Estuary Programs, and they'll be receiving an additional $132 million uh, over the next five years. So that's $132 million divided uh, among all the NEPs and divided over five years. So that's going to add, significantly add to the um, funds that we're able to provide to each of the 28 NEPs. Um, Excellent. Yeah, that's sort of quick math seems like it's about almost doubling the federal investment in uh, NEPs over the next five years, which is uh, terrific. Um, Roberto, Laura, going back to you guys, how are you guys funded in addition to the uh, EPA federal funds? The Mobile Bay National Estuary Program receives a significant amount of funding from the state of Alabama, and that's part of our non-federal Uh, match obligation for receiving these EPA dollars, but a lot of our funding comes from competitively awarded grants. Being on the Gulf Coast, we have benefited significantly from the Restore Act that was established after the BP oil spill. And so a lot of the funding that comes through our books now is through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund or the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation um, Coastal Resilience Fund, National Coastal Resilience Fund. But we do leverage our EPA dollars and those National Fish and Wildlife Fund dollars with ADEM, our Alabama Department of Environmental Management, Section 319 funds, wherever we can. And to give you an idea of our budget, um, with the 750000 of EPA dollars, this is before the, the, the infrastructure comes into our budget, the infrastructure money. Right now, our running budget with projects in different, different stages of implementation is approximately $24 million. And that's not per year, but it's a, a rolling over a five-year basis. It grows, it, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, if you will. But we're managing approximately somewhere between 20 and $25 million worth of projects on an annual basis. And, and so to add to that, another almost million dollars of infrastructure funding that will allow us to focus specifically on the gaps that the competitively awarded grants you know, haven't addressed, we're really looking forward to, be able, to being able to make some huge strides over the next five years particularly in the areas of underserved communities. How about you, Laura? Is it similar? Uh, are you funded by the state at all or, or state and competitive grants? Where does your funding come from? We are similar in many ways to Roberta and different in some significant ways. So yes, uh, we receive about half of our annual budget from the state of Washington since we're a 
state agency. So that process is, is very important. Um, and then of course the $750,000 grant that Jeff mentioned from the national estuary program. Uh, we are also a geographic program in, uh, under EPA as well. And so we receive a substantial amount of funding f- through our geographic program as well. So we're about 50% state funded and 50% federally funded. Um, we also receive a small amount of funding from NOAA uh, due to our role as the regional salmon recovery organization for Puget Sound. But we are different from Roberta because we, the partnership uh, this agency does not manage projects ourselves. We don't get grants to do work ourselves on, you know, estuary restoration projects or stormwater cleanup and that sort of thing. Um, we support our partners to get that funding. So that funding doesn't come through this agency. So it's not part of my budget. Um, and I imagine other states are other uh, programs are, are similarly, <laughs> similarly similar and similarly different in that some get... Mm-hmm state funding and and looking across the map most it seems like most programs are within a state but there are certainly some that uh, cross state boundaries that New York New Jersey harbor uh, would probably uh, get get to both um, uh, so uh, looking towards the future we've talked a bit about the the work that you're doing now and and the roles um, and the kind of different uh, planning that you're doing and implementation for that planning. But let's look even a little bit further down the line. What would you say is needed? Now, I'm actually interested in hearing all of your perspectives on this. So uh, we'll, we'll go in sort of reverse order from what we've done. So I'll start with Laura and then go to Roberta and finish up with Jeff. But what do you guys see as needed for the NEP system? So not just your own specific NEP, but what do you think is needed uh, for the system over the next 50 years? We're obviously looking at a very uh, a highly changeable landscape um, with climate change. So, how does how does the NEP system need to change with that? Need to evolve with that? Need to grow? What would you like to see? Um, and again, I'll start with you, Laura. That is a, a great question. Um, and I, I should say I don't have an opinion about whether we need additional national estuary programs nationwide, that sort of thing. But I think that for each of us to succeed. We need, I mean, thinking big, right? We need this, the world to grapple with climate change, right? The goalposts for Puget Sound Recovery, for, for Roberta's program, for all of our programs, the goalposts keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> and so the work that we are doing right now to adapt to climate change and help people get out of harm's way and reduce flood risk and restore our our um, pocket estuaries and our major river deltas and bring our salmon back, right? All of that is so important and we are barely keeping pace with the effects of climate change. And so if we don't do something to, and we writ large, uh, globally speaking, to fix that global problem, uh, then then I don't know what we need to do. <laughs> we just maybe just a huge infusion of, of funding. Um, I think the other thing that we all need, uh, and this is maybe hopefully shorter term, uh, maybe over the next you know five to 10 years is to get really smart about how we manage population growth in our estuaries because estuaries tend to be places where people wanna live. Certainly the Puget Sound region um, over the last 10 years has had a booming economy. Um, people want to move here. It's a great place to live, I have to say. Um, but how do we manage that population growth in a way that means that we have affordable housing while still protecting habitat? And then lastly, as I mentioned earlier, you know, environmental justice and bringing in communities of color, underserved, marginalized communities, um, elevating those voices and really centering them in our work is a new frontier for many of us. And I would put myself in that, in that bucket. We've worked with our Puget Sound tribes for, for many, many years. And that has been um, one of the high points of my professional experience. Uh, But there are many other communities out there that we haven't done as great of a job in involving. And I am learning and excited to learn how to do that better. And I think if we can elevate 
those voices, center them, understand their priorities, include them, infuse them, make them one with Puget Sound Recovery, with National Estuary Program priorities, um, we'll do a better job building the political will to make the changes we need to make. Excellent. Roberta, what are your thoughts? How do I top that? (laughs) This was my first thought. (laughs) What do I add to it? (laughs) Um, She kind of hit on some of the things that I was thinking about. But, you know, uh, we produced this film a couple of years ago called The Flight of the Frigate Bird. And it was a traditional ecological knowledge um, story. And what I've learned, I'm not from... I am not from coastal Alabama. I'm from the Northeast. It's a lot more urbanized up there. What I have seen in the 22 years of living along the Alabama coast is we really, in in a lot of ways, have a lot of land available to us, or we did back when we first moved here. And I've seen a lot of growth, a lot of people moving to the coast, even knowing that sea levels are rising, hurricanes are getting more extreme. That has not stopped people from trying to develop tourism opportunities and, you know, uh, bring people to the coast to live, even if it's short term. Um, Some of the challenges we've faced in trying to raise money for some of the environmental protection projects that we undertake is there's always this competition between environmental protection and economic or community development. So I would say that one of the needs we have collectively across our coasts is how do we integrate or institutionalize environmental protection into our community and economic development planning and activities. Because if we were more proactive on the front end, we wouldn't have to be so reactive on the back end. And I know that it's human nature to be proact to be reactive, I should say. And I think our biggest challenge is that behavior change into being proactive and requiring some of these things we can develop with nature, we can develop in a uh, in an appropriate way. So it's not anti-development, it's just changing the way we do business, continuously improving how we manage our environment, how we build out our environment so that it has a lesser impact on our ability to recover from storms and a lesser impact on the ecosystem function that happens around us. Okay, Jeff, you're on the spot. We've just had some excellent answers. What What is needed for the NEP system over the next 10 to 50 years? How articulate. Yeah, um, I don't know that I can completely uh, top what Laura and, and Roberta said, but maybe what I can do is try to string some of their comments together a little bit and just reinforce that. When I look at the entire NEP network, I think that we're learning NEPs are uh, the areas that underlie them are a lot more dynamic landscapes than perhaps we previously thought. I think for a long time, many scientists and others thought um, we can expect these uh, coastal wetlands, et cetera, to stay where they are. And we know that they're on the move. Um, And this is really true for all conservation efforts. But in the coastal zone, I think we see clearly where water and land are coming together and the changing patterns due to sea level rise. Um, And I think NEPs need to be prepared for that and help the communities that live in these different landscapes. And NEP watersheds are also dynamic because this is where, as, as Roberta said very well, um, much of our population resides and the past several decades have seen a lot of growth. And so this double whammy of kind of land use change and climate change are affecting these watersheds. And in the next 50 years, um, you know, this is a real opportunity and also a challenge to map out the future of these estuarine land and seascapes in a way that supports greater protection and restoration. And, And honestly, it may take another 50 years for us to reach some of our goals for watershed health, but I'm I want to be optimistic and say we know how to do this. Uh, we have tools to plan and apply best management practices and to ultimately adapt and to build resilience. And it's some of those nature-based solutions, I think, that R- Roberta was was talking about. Um, 
we just need to apply them at greater scales for the health of the watershed. And, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law funding is a, is a step in the right direction. And it's a real welcome infusion of additional funds that will help the NEPs to accelerate their efforts. But it is, you know, it's five to seven years of funding. And that's great. We know it's going to take a lot more resources and um, a lot more concerted effort within these watersheds, which is why I hope the NEPs continue to persist and they continue to grow and mature. Um, and I think they're, the significance of their role within these coastal watersheds is just going to increase over time. Well, thank you guys. Those were some amazing answers. I might add in my two cents, but I just wanted to sort of flag we heard, you know, the sort of fundamental need to address climate pollution. Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything any of us can do if we don't get a handle on the, the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. But some great thoughts um, from Laura around how we deal with population growth in the coastal area, maintaining affordability, maintaining those sort of human dynamics while also maintaining human uh, ecological protection and, and habitat restoration, the dynamics of environmental justice and making sure that the communities that are often most vulnerable are actually the ones that are being protected and have access to some of the coastal uh, areas. Um, the integration of environmental protection and economic development was, I think, really what I heard from Roberta and how we can continue to develop with nature, not in opposed to nature. And then, uh, you know, just a nice synthesis there from, from Jeff talking about how can we do all of this at greater scale, not just looking at it at sort of a piecemeal approach, but across, uh, across the country and across um, the entire watershed. And then longer term funding. The, the one thing that I, I would add to that is, you know, when you look at a map of the NEPs, they often overlap with the National Estuarian Research Reserves. They overlap with some of our premier uh, research institutions. There's sea grants in the state. I represent the coastal zone management programs. And so I think there's all these great entities. And I think, not saying that it's not happening already, I think there is a lot of good coordination, but uh, figuring out how to continue to coordinate and continue to manage and make sure that all of this is being done efficiently and um, as quickly as possible. I mean, I think so much of this restoration needs to happen yesterday, but if we can't do it yesterday, then let's do it. Let's do it tomorrow um, to make sure that, that that's working. So uh, really appreciate all of these answers. I, you know, we could easily spend multiple podcasts going into the NEPs, um, but I did sort of want to wrap up. I do have a final question that I always ask all my guests, um, and I'm actually going to make it a little bit harder for you. Uh, usually I just ask, what's your favorite uh, beach or coastal area? But since you represent a beach or coastal area, I'm going to ask you to give me two. So what is the favorite uh, coastal area within the um, the boundaries of your estuary program? And then a quick one that is outside of your estuary program can be in the United States or around the world. But so your favorite uh, favorite in, in a program and your favorite without. So um and Jeff, we'll, we'll start with you because you don't have a specific one. So you can just, your favorite coastal pro, your favorite coastal area anywhere in the world. <laughs> I was kind of hoping to hear from Laura and Roberta just to check my, um, my, my thought, which was that Laura coming from the Pacific Northwest might, might choose that area and Roberta might talk about the Gulf Coast. And I wanted to round out the, just the, the representation of the NEPs by, giving a shout out to the New England area, which is closer to where I grew up, and just talk about how it's so heartening to see the um, the string of national estuary programs down our east coast from Maine through New England and down into the mid-Atlantic. Um, and so um, maybe the little story that, that that I would say is that when I started my career, I was more focused on ornithology and I started studying bald eagles. And um, you know, bald eagles are, are found a lot of different places, but they really are fish eagles. And so they really are uh, very strongly connected to wetlands and rivers and coasts. And so um, places where I get to see bald eagles are always a huge treat for me. And now that they have largely recovered, they're back in a lot of different places around the U.S. And that was not the case when I was growing up as a kid. And so I guess I'd point to places like, um, you know, wonderful places like uh, uh, uh Casco Bay up in up in Maine, where I've got some some friends up there, and whenever I go to visit, you know that's always a, a terrific experience and a very different kind of a shoreline than some of the places that are now closer to home, where I live in the Washington D.C. area. Um, Casco Bay is is and and many of the other NEPs like the Piscataqua and some of the other places um, uh, in New England are are terrific 
uh, locations, but outside of the NEP network, but still within our geographic programs, um, within the Chesapeake Bay, uh, one of the projects I did was focused on uh, Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which is in the Chesapeake Bay and has a healthy population of bald eagles there. So when I first moved to DC, that was one of the first places I went uh, because it was a reliable place to see large numbers of bald eagles. So I still have a special place in my heart for Blackwater and some of the work that we've done there on marsh migration and trying to help that landscape in terms of transitioning uh, given given some of the changes they're experiencing due to sea level rise in the area. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff. How about you, Roberta? One place within Mobile Bay and one place outside of Mobile Bay. I can't give you one place. <laughs> I'm trying to... Uh, okay, Mobile Bay, it's going to have to be Dolphin Island because that's where I live. And it is just powder white sand. It's beautiful. The west end of Dolphin Island, let's say. Um, beyond that, I could tell you Lome Togo's beaches were cool uh, along the coast of West Africa, but Rockland, Maine or Nantucket would probably, all three of those would be my second choices. Can't go wrong. Excellent. Laura, how about you? <laughs> oh, wow. I think I'm in the same boat as Roberta and Jeff here. Uh, I, here in Puget Sound, I would say my favorite spot is Seahurst Park in the small city of Burien, south of Seattle, where uh, I got started working on a grant that was my first project uh, to restore a natural shoreline, take out almost a mile of, um, of seawall. And it, that project is now complete, thankfully, and it's a beautiful, beautiful park um, and place for lots of people to go and get a lot of connection to Puget Sound. So it's a great spot. And then, uh, Apparently, like Jeff and Roberta, I am from the Northeast also. I grew up in Massachusetts, and so I have lots of fond memories of Cape Cod as a kid. So that would be my second favorite. Excellent. Well, thank you guys. Really uh, appreciate hearing about the work you do and even more appreciate the work that you do. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.